Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? They were talking about Thunderball. Starring Sean Connery, Claudine Auger, Adolfo Celli, Luciana Paluzzi, Rick Van Neuter, Desmond Llewellyn, Bernard Lee, and directed by Terrence Young. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. This is Arnie, but you can call me Thunderballs. And I'm just happy I don't have to say all these Italian names at the top. I actually practiced this this time, folks. <laughs> Seriously, why isn't this called Thunderballs? I mean, if there can be an octopussy, I mean, if they're going to go that lewd, I mean, I was shocked. (laughs) (laughs) We are at Bond number four, Thunderball. Now, remember I mentioned this in the first podcast. They wanted this to be the first James Bond movie, but that was not to be. They finally got it here at number four. And this was one of the most anticipated movies of all time. Goldfinger, as I mentioned last time, was a huge phenomenon. And the 60s spy craze was in full swing because of Goldfinger and other things. Counting for inflation, this is the biggest money-making bond of them all. Thunderball is. Yes, it is. Oh, I thought Goldfinger was. No. Because Goldfinger was such a big hit. Ah, it was money already spent. Out the gate, people went to see it. Because I don't think it's as admired as Goldfinger. But I think they had the most money here, for sure, right? Biggest budget? You're absolutely right. Goldfinger had doubled the budgets of the first two movies. It was like four or five million. This one was nine million dollars. And at the time, that's unheard of. But if you watch this movie, you'll see where the money is. Yeah, definitely feels more epic this time. It felt like what happens anytime you have a raging success and how do you top yourself? Bigger, big, big, big. I feel like this one was trying to do everything that had been done the last time but on a grander scale. And it should be pointed out with Terrence Young again. It was not the director of Goldfinger. The man that directed Dr. No and From Russia With Love is back behind the camera. He is here to reclaim the series as his own. And I do think it has a difference in style because of that. Yeah, it seems a little bit less jokey. It seems like we were talking last time about the amount of camp and inane circumstances we're supposed to expect from a James Bond film. This seems to have ratcheted it back to the level of the first two, whereas Goldfinger went a little beyond. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you on that. It's just less absurd, which is not to say it's better. It's just that it is going for a tone that is more in keeping with a more restrained Bond. Sure, I can see that, but I also feel they went for the jokes here, and they just fell flatter. Thunderball, right from the top of the movie, in every sense, feels like they're trying to do the same beats as the last one did, and are not being as successful. And what we called camp last time, that kind of air to it, certainly is missing because the director's trying to bring it back down to earth a little bit, and it's not completely gelling Yeah, it's not Goldfinger, and I guess the way to determine whether that's good or bad is to get into it. Arnie, how about a plot? Spectre is back, led by number one operative Blofeld, and he has a new plan. He has an agent get plastic surgery to look like a NATO pilot, who then crash lands a plane with two atomic bombs in the ocean. With these bombs, Blofeld demands NATO deliver 100 million pounds in white, flawless, uncut diamonds, or else he will nuke a city either in the U.S. or the U.K. Due to the severity of the case, all MI600 agents are called in and sent to various areas, but in their briefing packet, James Bond recognizes one of the men from a stay he had at a resort. Knowing the man's sister Domino is in Nassau, Bond gets sent there where he partners with Felix Leiter of the CIA. Much back and forth ensues, and Bond discovers the operative in charge of this mission is a man named Largo, and Domino is his lover. Bond seduces Domino, so now, thanks to Bond's magic penis, she's on his side, helping him to find the nukes, 
And Bond finds out the plan is to nuke Miami, and I can only hope it's during one of MTV's spring break specials. Bond and Lighter don scuba gear and, backed up by dozens of troops, infiltrate Largo's ship, the Disco Volante, and Domino spears Largo with a harpoon gun, causing the boat to careen into the rocks and explode, but not before Domino and Bond can jump into a life raft and snuggle close together, awaiting their rescue, which comes in an unexpected manner as credits roll. Let's start with that opening sequence. Well, this opening sequence is all about the rocket pack. Let's just call it out. They just want to show off this really cool <laughs> rocket pack. Come on. That does not seem to be the most efficient method of escape. <laughs> it's like, I have a rocket pack. Where can I use it? Not, I'm in a building and need to escape. What's the best route out? He had to plant it there to begin with before he even tried to get out of the building. The only way I can explain it is they want to begin the movie as they end the movie, going up into the air, into the clouds, as it were. Yes, I don't know why you would choose to do it this way, but I do like the idea of starting it at a funeral, and they do have a casket with JB on the initials for a half second. I'm thinking this is the one where we think James Bond is dead, and he's really not. It's not. There's a Spectre agent who has the same initials, Jacques Bouvier, and... I guess he has a suspicion that he may not be dead. Right. And he killed two other double O agents, so he's there, I think, to be sure he's dead one way or another, leading to a wonderful fight with a man in drag. I love this fight. It's funny. It's action-y. It's what I want from an action film and a Bond film. I'm right with it in this opening fight. As a kid, I don't remember much about Thunderball, but this scene I remembered, and it sent me into gales of laughter at the time. It's still pretty funny now. Yes, because the widow gets out of the car without the assistance of a man opening the door for her, that tells Bond that this is really the guy in drag pretending to be his own widow. And so when she walks into the room and you still think it's the widow, he's like, ha, la, la, and then sucker punch right in the veil. I love it. Yeah, it's a really fun fight up into, in my opinion, into the rocket pack where the whole scene just devolves to. <laughs> but the fight is great. And a little fun of trivia here, the guy he's fighting is Bob Simmons, who is the guy in the opening gun barrel sequence for the first three movies. Here they refilmed it for Sean Connery in the gun barrel sequence because they made it in this into a Panavision movie, the first big widescreen James Bond epic. Why wouldn't they have used Connery to begin with? Why go with some model to do the opening? It wasn't originally supposed to be in every single Bond film, so they had the stunt guy come in and do it, and they kept it in the beginning of From Russia With Love because they switched around the order of the scenes. So this is the first time they actually had Connery because they had to redo it anyway. This guy, he's all over Goldfinger. He is all over this movie, too. When Connery does stunts, it's this guy. Well, he sure got wet in this movie. <laughs> he sure did. And it's nice they share a scene together if you know this, all this information. They finally on the screen together instead of the guy doubling for Connery. It's kind of a nice little piece of trivia. And that rocket belt we've all seen before, it actually is real. It only flies for like 20 seconds or something, but it actually is still around today. People still use it. I'm imagining football stadiums watching mascots fly in or Super Bowl performances. I saw it at Star Wars Celebration where they had a Django Fett with it. And damn is it loud, they fired it indoors, and I honestly thought that my hearing might have been permanently impaired. It was not a fun time. And we talked last time about how Arnie and I did not really care for that theme song. Well, here is a theme song which I really, really do not like. I do not like the Thunderball song, and the biggest reason I don't like it, it's not Tom Jones' performance, I don't actually have a problem with that. I don't understand what he's singing about. There is no man named Thunderball. It's an arbitrary title. Unlike Goldfinger, it was about a guy named Goldfinger. This title, Thunderball, it's just a code name. And it could have been anything. And why not go for the double entendre? But it doesn't mean anything. So it must have been very difficult to come up with a song that means anything. That said, I'm going to ding it even worse. I don't like Tom Jones. I think he was a flavor of the month. You know, what's new, Pussycat? And it's not unusual. And he was done. But those two songs had just come out. So he gets Thunderball, not to the credit of anyone. I mean, he gets through the song and he certainly holds the last note. It's got some nice strings, but it, in the end, it just sounds like a clumsy 
attempt to recapture Goldfinger. All the horns and all of that. At the end of the day, it's Goldfinger with Tom Jones screaming in it. And, you know, they did try other themes. I don't know if you've heard the Johnny Cash version, but Johnny Cash threw his hat into the ring. Google this. It's really worth your while. Johnny Cash Thunderball theme is floating around. You can find it on YouTube. I'll just say it definitely has a different vibe than the aquatic Bahama set feeling of this movie. I don't think it'll work, but no version of Thunderball do I think musically works. Well, there actually was another song before Thunderball song here. Dion Warwick recorded a song called Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which James Bond is known for overseas. It was coined during, I think, the Dr. No press junket. And it's a nice little song. They actually made the title sequence for that song. But since the title of the movie is not in the song at all, the producers felt it was not the right thing to use. And so they got this song quickly put into this movie. That's the reason we have this song as opposed to a better song called Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I like the song Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I got it on a CD somewhere. This song is better than Goldfinger because I like Tom Jones a little bit. She's a lady is a good song. Oh, I would rather hear Tom Jones sing any day. It is less fingernails on chalkboard to me, but it's still not good. I'm still not putting it on my iPod or making it my ringtone. But it's an improvement, perhaps just because we're one year into the future and music is getting a little bit more my taste. Ooh, no, this is going to factor towards the end of the charts. I can tell you right now, this is one of the ones that I'm least impressed with. No, I like most Bond themes, actually, or at least think they hit a certain median, but this one falls below it. Like what you said, Brock, it's not about anything. Musically, it's just kind of a rehash. It's blah. And maybe that's the tone they're setting here. (laughs) I don't disagree. I mean, once we get past the credits... I'm immediately disheartened. At first, I was like, yes, Spectre's back, because I kind of view Spectre versus MI6's Cobra versus G.I. Joe. And so I was really excited to see Spectre back and the whole operatives and the white pussycat. I was really happy, but then they spell out the whole plot pretty quickly that they're going to steal a couple nuclear missiles and ransom them for $100 million. And I know $100 is a lot of money, even now, let alone back then. It was pounds. $280 million, 100 million pounds. Is that today's exchange rate or 60's exchange rate? I think they said it in the movie. Okay. Yes, <laughs> I am quoting the movie. Okay, I wasn't sure, because I know the pound's worth a lot more than a dollar. Still, it seems small time for him. What does he need the money for? I thought he wanted to control the world. I totally agree. This is not a good plot for Blofeld. I never thought of them as bank robbers. And that's essentially what they're doing. They're ransoming. I would be more cool with it that they want to get nuclear warheads because they want to set off nuclear warheads. But no, they actually don't want to set up the nuclear warheads. They want diamonds. And that's lame. I thought these guys were cooler. I thought these guys were about letting the East and West destroy each other and then claiming power. There's so much more you could do with two nukes than get a bunch of money. I just think this is lame. Plus, learn from Lex Luthor. You don't destroy one city in the U.S. or one in the U.K. You have two nukes. Why not destroy one of each? Well, to be fair, Lex Luthor had every intention to shoot both missiles at California. Otis made one go the other way. But that's a different retrospective series entirely. I agree with both of you. The plot's pretty lame. But this is closer to what Spectre was from what I've read in the original novel. And don't forget, they put Spectre into From Russia With Love movie instead of the Russians. So the cool Spectre From Russia With Love that we all loved isn't really what Spectre is about (laughs) in the rest of the movie and what Spectre was originally created for. Haven't gotten to the Thunderball book yet. This feels plot anemic this time out. I feel like there's not enough here to go on. That said, I do like the beginning. I do like the way that they go about getting the nuke. That's kind of fun. I agree with you completely. The plot way, how they get that is great. But after we get the frying of the guy in the chair that Austin Powers so wonderfully spoofs, we get to this fitness club where that guy who got the plastic surgery for the plot is staying or is healing. Bond is there, and I watched this movie three times for this podcast, and I can't tell you why Bond is there. Damn it! I was really hoping you could! (laughs) I can't. I, I, I don't understand why he's there. Yeah, it just seems like this is where you go after you fly around in a jetpack. You need your back worked on. And so he's here because they have the best chiropractics. And that just happens to also be the best place where you recover from total facial reconstruction surgery. (laughs) So you can look like a NATO pilot. I think there's a line dropped about him 
you know, just needing some R&R to improve his health or something. But yeah, it is a weird mixture of spa, plastic reconstructive surgery clinic. Somewhere, if you go through there, is the person who's reconstructing their face to look like a cheetah, I'm sure. <laughs> Here's the problem. I think that this plot would be very, very cool. It's working double time to try and work Bond in here. Every time Bond is brought into it, it feels clumsy. He's behind the game. Like, he's not figuring any of this stuff out until it's way too late. He doesn't thwart what they're trying to do. He really just beats up a bunch of goons downstairs. It's disappointing that Bond, yet again, is not asked to do anything that's spy-like. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that, because that's exactly what my problem was with this whole movie. In the last movie, at least we didn't know Goldfinger's entire plot. It was revealed in stages. He's a smuggler. He's going to rob Fort Knox. He's going to set off a nuke. It escalated. We learned with Bond. In this movie, we know before we're a quarter of the way in the entire bad guy plot. It's a mistake to start us with Spectre. You know what I think would have been great is... Start us with Bond, and then not let us see the kidnapping of the nukes, not let us see Spectres involved until the very end. Make that the big twist. Oh, it was all a Spectre plot. Something like that. Because we know everything, and Bond knows nothing, we're omniscient, he's stupid, we're spending two hours watching him catch up. And he's not even really detecting, he's just kind of going. And this is painful for me. Well... Also, he's there by coincidence. He falls into a specter plot, MI6's arch enemy, by mistake. And it's lame. I completely agree with you. I was not into this plot at all. And while the last movie, as we talked about, you could really question the plot and why things are going on. But you just had this air of, let's just go with it and have fun. Here, you're asking questions right away. And that's never good because you have, what, an hour and a half left. (laughs) Already, we're questioning what's going on. I honestly think that some of this could have been fixed really easily with editing. If we had gone from that opening to the flight, and literally the next scene is of this guy who's gotten facial reconstruction surgery. He's really a Spectre agent, but everyone thinks that he is Francois Durvel, the NATO pilot. He gasses everyone on the plane and brings the plane down into an underwater layer. I think if you had just cut us that, we would have been hooked. Oh, a plane just got stolen. What's that about? It disappeared. And Bond's going to go in to investigate. I think that's your hook. But you're right. Because we saw that it is not Francois. We know it's this other guy. We saw where he landed. We saw who picked it up. We saw everything that they got. They have no more secrets to share at this point. It is Bond perpetually trying to play catch up, which takes two hours. And they're not two interesting hours. I really have some problems with just the way it goes about. We just have him going through these action scenes that, I gotta say, in four Bond movies, these are the worst action scenes we've seen, which they have the biggest budget, but they're the least exciting. I have tried, tried, tried to be forgiving to this Bond series for its action scenes. Oh, there's terrible jump cuts when Connery's throwing a punch when he connects because they just have to cut the film and change and have the actors stand. It's the 60s. People just were stupider then. They don't notice these things. They weren't as savvy or sophisticated. But, oh, they sped up the frames so that it looked more exciting. Oh, it's the 60s. Here, they seem to have gotten lazy. So much of this movie is either blue screen or sped up, especially at the end, that... Every single action scene became grating. I'm not going to agree with you on that. I think that there is some spectacular action in keeping with the time. I mean, yes, anything done today can't compete. I think there is some groundbreaking action stuff when it's underwater. When this movie has got the scuba gear on, I'm with it. Every time it is above water, it is sinking. And that's really my review of the whole thing. I think that the underwater stuff is fun, and that's the stuff they pushed. You know, Bond in the red wetsuit, that was all the promo and movie poster and all that. That's what they want to sell you on. Bond is getting his scuba on. But a lot of this movie doesn't take place underwater, and there's a real lull here. I think one of the big problems is our villain. Not compelling, aren't you? You had Beast with Goldfinger, but you're probably missing him at this point. I didn't even really know who the villain was, because we started off, and it's Blofeld, or number one. I still don't know if his name's said anywhere but the credits. But when this whole thing goes down, 
I think Blofeld's in charge of it. So when Largo starts showing up, honestly, it wasn't until maybe three quarters of the way through that I finally got a bead on Largo. Because I just kept thinking Blofeld was in charge because we started with him. I didn't get that he delegated to such a degree. And as such, it makes Largo look weak. Unlike from Russia with Love, here he made so little impression in a room filled with men who look exactly like him that... It didn't work for me as a villain at all. It's almost like there was no villain in this one. There were nukes, which I could go with. It works for so many movies that the bad guy is a nuke. But in the end, he has to punch somebody who's not a nuke. No, this is the same as From Russia with Love. It's the same setup. Blofeld has various henchmen underneath him. What Largo needs is some poison tip shoes. He needs something really cool. That's what it is. It's not that he's this second in command that makes him look ineffectual. It's that literally all he's got is an eye patch and a scowl. But that's what I'm saying is he was in a room full of guys dressed in similar suits, whereas before... We only saw Blofeld with two others, both of whom were important. Here we see a room of others, people get electrocuted, and it didn't come across that Largo was in charge at this point. And so that's why he just skipped my radar. And about halfway through, I'm like, who is the big bad? Well, he is called number two, so thus he would be second in command. He's replacing Dr. No. I think that we were meant to think that Dr. No used to be number two. So now this is the guy second in command. This is not necessarily a great association because I didn't think Dr. No was a particularly intimidating villain. But, you know, at least he had the mechanical hands or whatever. This here, I mean, literally, it's all about your intimidation factor and your henchmen. I agree that Largo is no Goldfinger, and he certainly isn't a Rosa Klebb. And his eye patch is not metal hands. But it is clear to me, when he walks into the room and he has the plan, that he is the baddie of the movie. You're both right. He is not up to snuff at what we're used to. But to me, it is clear he is the guy. Is he worth Bond going after? Is he, like, the biggest bad ever? No, I don't find him to be a compelling villain at all. But for me, he was completely the guy that Bond was up against. Yeah, he's the first one we see. He parks his car illegally. I mean, so <laughs> that makes him stand out. I wouldn't say that makes him threatening, but it makes him stand out to us. It wasn't that I didn't notice the guy. I always noticed the guy with the eye patch. And that's why he has the eye patch, because he can't cry blood or he can't have metal hands. Right. So they should have given him something like that, and they didn't. Right. The eye patch is in its place. Right. If you yourself aren't that interesting, you could argue that Goldfinger didn't have anything beyond the fact that everything he had and touched was gold. Well, you at least need an odd job. You at least need henchmen that fill in the personality that you lack. And I think this is also a real failing of Thunderball. They didn't even think to create other characters that had the same pizzazz as odd job. You're right. Although I did like the female henchman the most. Fiona Vople is not bad, but she's more like Pussy Galore for a while, or at least before Pussy Galore got changed. She is a vixen, yes, but I always put the bad girls in a different category from the bad guy henchmen. You know, the bad guy henchmen here are just never ending. There's a guy that hides in the shower and he finds him because he put a tape recorder in his room and he even lets the guy go and he gets thrown in a shark pool. There's this one guy they talk up as Vargas. They're like, oh, he has no vices. He doesn't smoke drink have sex or anything i'm like oh well this guy will be fearsome he gets shot with a harpoon and never does anything as far as i can see there are countless bad guys you know the guy that helps with the plastic surgery the guy that got plastic surgery there are lots of bad henchmen here none of them really have a gimmick none of them really have anything that makes you fear them and you were talking before how they brought the series back with this director towards more what from russia love and dr no are doing well, here you have that, because Dr. Yeah. No only had the metal hands, and he really wasn't around for that much of the movie. But at Russia with Love, which we all loved, they had these kind of henchmen, but the difference was they were very distinct. And we knew who yes. everybody was. Yeah, mm -hmm. you're right. I liked everybody that was in From Russia with Love, but yes, there was a lot of them. And it is reminding me a lot of Dr. No, because we've gone back to the islands. You know, it's not Jamaica, but it's the Bahamas. It's real close. We're back to the islands. The danger is still about attacking America in Florida. I feel like it is so similar to Dr. No, and that's not necessarily a good thing here. It feels kind of as aimless and as defanged as that movie did in the middle. But 
all the time. Once the plane goes down underwater, until we get to the big underwater battle at the end, there is a big lull of Bond kind of just swimming around. He's come to the Bahamas really by happenstance. The nukes could be anywhere. But because the man that they impersonated, the pilot, had a sister that lives in the Bahamas that's cute, that's enough for Bond (laughs) to go to NASA and find her Somehow she's going to be the link, which she so conveniently is for no other reason other than happenstance. Now, we talked about how I have no idea why Bond was at that spa. Plot hole number two, I have no idea how Bond knew that Domino was in the Bahamas. He just comes out to M and says, she's in the Bahamas. How did you get this information, 007? Okay, I didn't miss it. I thought it was just me who missed it. I was confused by this. I'm like, I know he saw that guy at the spa, but... Was the spa in Nassau? No, no. Here's what it is. Here's the link. There is a photo in their Thunderball dossier of Francois the pilot and his sister posing like lovers. Very creepy. We're going to get into that in just a second. (laughs) On a beach. And they know, I think from that, that that beach is in Nassau. So maybe... He can make that jump, and he studies her legs and goes, well, she has those moles in her inner thigh, so I'll find her that way. And literally, next scene, she's swimming underwater, and he comes up and pulls her out of the coral, and the plot goes on. You know, it's one thing to be absurd, Arnie. I hope you're recognizing the difference. The absurdities of Goldfinger are over the top, but they are never so happenstance and lazy as what's being done here. Oh, I completely realize it. I completely realize when one movie just goes against my bullcrap filter and another movie just is incoherent, which is what I felt this movie was. And I'm the Bond fan, and I'm right there with you both. I just don't enjoy this plot. And for years, when I'm having the conversations with other Bond fans, I feel like I'm the only one who's noticing this stuff. (laughs) Thunderball is considered a good movie by a lot of Bond fans, and while there are certainly good parts about it here and there, overall, I think it's just a second rate. They're trying to do so much, just not cutting muster. I would love to talk to someone that is a big Thunderball fan, because while I don't think this is bad, per se, I think Arnie's probably going to be one to make the case for that, everything here is lesser than what we just got in the last two movies. We are back to the Dr. No problems, but at least in that, Connery was having fun, and I felt like I was on holiday, and I liked some of these people. I liked his assistants. But here we get Felix again, our third and worst Felix. Who is this guy? His name is Rick Van Neuter, and the only thing I can give props to for the James Bond series is that since they have this guy following Bond, and you don't know it's Felix, so the, oh, it's Felix thing keeps working. (laughs) Why they didn't get the other guy, I have not found out, but... I mean, we didn't like the other guy anyway. But I'm learning to appreciate him. I thought that it was a strange choice that it wasn't Jack Lord and that they played him older, but I kind of understood why. But this guy is generic. I don't even get the sense that he's American, but whatever. You know, I don't like Felix this time. I don't mind Felix this time. I like him better than the last Felix. It's almost setting a precedent, though. Pretty soon we're going to be changing our bonds. We're just changing the Americans first. Yeah, well, he's the least important part. I mean, most things don't change. We get Connery pretty consistently. I don't think Bonds change from movie to movie like Batman. I feel stable enough to say Connery will be back. But yeah, I don't know when the next Felix appearance is going to be, and I don't know who's going to be playing him. And I feel like each time I get him, I like him less. This tempted me to look it up, and it's not until we get to the Daniel Craig movies that we get Felix twice in a row, the same actor. True, and only one actor plays him twice, but there's like a 15-year span in between. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well. We'll get there. Yes. But if you like this Felix a little, you're not loving him, right? I mean, I'm not wrong here. Everything feels lesser this time. Yeah, he's no Jack Lord, and this feels lesser than even Dr. No. You say the last two, I say the last three. Here... This one feels so phoned in. It's like Brock said at the beginning. We're in a sequel that's trying to imitate the beats of the previous ones, whereas the previous ones were all innovating. We were building the Bond formula brick by brick. I said I was so impressed with Dr. No, how much of the Bond formula was right there. But then from Russia with Love, even more. With Goldfinger, it was finally cemented, and now we're imitating. And so Everything in this movie, to me, is lesser than the three that have come before. Everything. I agree. One thing I like better here is Nassau. I find it much more pretty than I found Jamaica. The parts we see, anyway. We see much more of Nassau. 
I've actually found it more bland. I like Jamaica for its culture and its ethnicity. Here, mm. honestly, I wondered if the director was like, I want to go to a beach. Let's set this in the Bahamas. That was the only thing I could think. It just felt more generic to me that a whole bunch of actors and studio people would want to go to the Bahamas. I'm with Arnie on this. I mean, at least in Dr. No, we got a scary island that had a dragon on it. There was something to be fearful. Here, it's just a mansion with a shark pool. It's just not the same thing. And the sharks don't even have freaking lasers on their heads. And, you know, if I was upset with the treatment of the tarantula in Dr. No, the treatment of the sharks in this movie. They wanted characterized sharks that if you get into the pool with them, they will rip you limb to limb. At one point, Bond has to shoot one shark to put blood in the ocean so that it distracts all the other sharks so he can go and dive down there. I was mortified by this. Did, did <laughs> Were sharks hurt in the filming of this movie? Or does this get one of those labels that say no animal was hurt in this? Because it really looked like there was some shark killing going on. I believe there was one shark that got killed in the movie, yes. Yeah, it looks like it. But they also had that scene when the guy got thrown in the tank. The guy jumped on top of that shark, and they had to pay him extra money to do it. And he got out of there faster than you would believe because he was desperately scared he was going to get eaten by those sharks. Again, with the tarantula thing, the same story, that there was a lot of danger on the set, or everyone thought there was. They had a lot of trouble keeping the sharks alive. Of course, we learned about that in the Jaws series. We talked about that there in that kind of pool area. I liked the water here at Nassau. I agree with Arnie about the culture is missing. They try to do that with the Junkaloo later. But the water and the beautiful vistas, I really enjoy. I've been here. I like this part of the world. And it actually was, Arnie, in the original novel. The Kevin McClory put it in as part of the treatment, the screen treatment, that turned into the Thunderball novel. I will say there's one thing that they got right here. One thing that I associate with James Bond, the score. There's a certain James Bond action riff. It's that <laughs> John Barry again did this score and here, since I didn't like the Thunderball, <laughs> I didn't really care for the motifs in the movie. <laughs> in his fourth outing, I think Connery, he's very comfortable in his skin as Bond, but I think he's really become adept at his action scenes. Many times now we see his face during the action. I get the impression a stunt double was used less and less, and he was throwing more of his own punches, more of his own chairs, taking more of his own dives. He did do a lot of stunts in the other movies. They keep talking about how that great scene with Red Grant, he did almost all the shots. Here, I, I do agree he's certainly in the action. He was a Mr. Universe. He was in pretty good shape. I actually think he was kind of going through the motions here himself. He didn't look all that hot in this movie. That hair was really plastered on his head this time. <laughs> and he kind of looked older to me than he did in the last movie. It's only a year later. Maybe the lifestyle, maybe the whole Bond thing is coming to a head. He's done three or four movies in very close amount of time, plus movies in between. I just don't get his Bond in this. I don't really think he is invested in it as much as he was in the last movie. I think Connery calls this one of the favorites that he did, but I think he just liked being in the Bahamas. I think that's actually where he retired. So I think you're right. He probably enjoyed the extracurricular more than the actual finished product here. At least I would hope so. You know, I think Connery's been consistent. I have found him since Dr. No to be a very charming individual. The problem is he has nothing to play off of here. The girl they get, Domino, the whole reason that brings him to the Bahamas, I don't feel like they have any chemistry here together. It's really weird to me that she is romanticizing her brother, and that's who she really wants to be with. She is the girl of Largo, but that's just something she admits that, ah, I used to like him, and now I'm just kind of stuck. She says, literally, I want to find someone like my brother. <laughs> did anyone get a Jolie creepiness out of this? I did from that photo. That photo, I'm like, oh, it's his girlfriend, his sister? Yes. And then later when Bond actually tells her that the brother is dead, they're at the same beach in exactly the same shot as that photo. And she's starting to fall in love with him and now is going to avenge her brother. And I'm just like, oh, so she's transferred all of this onto Connery. It was odd. I got to say, it makes it less sexy this time. This is the first time where I feel like the romantic pairing does not work. The fireworks are off here. She's a very beautiful woman. She's an incredibly bad actress. She doesn't sell sex with Connery. 
I agree. That scene where they're screwing under the water could have been magical. Instead, it was just head-scratching to me. It really was. It comes out of nowhere. They just found the plane. Then all of a sudden, they're swimming at each other underwater. I'm like, how did they know to meet there? And then they're not going to go above. They're not going to say a word. No, we're just going to screw here on the bottom of the ocean, which admittedly, I'm all for. But... (laughs) It didn't even come off that way. I had to rewind. I'm like, did I just see what I... Yeah, okay, I did see. Oh, yeah, the big burst of bubbles. Logistically speaking, underwater sex must be difficult. You know, I'm sure there's, there's a mile high club, so maybe it's just a mile below club. I mean, what, <laughs> what, what would you call that? I don't know. Death, if it's a mile below. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The abyss. Yeah. But, uh... <laughs> the, I want to go back to that quick scene on the beach when Bond is telling Domino about the death of her brother. He puts sunglasses on, and... <laughs> I was like, is this a product placement thing? Because you don't see his face. Now, you could argue that it's Bond doesn't want to get emotionally attached or he's trying to hide his emotions from this woman. I think it was lame that he put the glasses on. It totally took me out of the scene questioning what was going on. And I agree that scene needed the eye contact for the chemistry of these two characters. Once he put the glasses on, all power of the scene went away from me. And that just put the final nail in the coffin that the script is telling us that Domino was falling in love with Bond, but we're not seeing it on the screen. This is the first time. Every other time, Ursula Andress is ridiculous and childlike as that character was. I at least went along with it as this fantasy. Here, it doesn't even work in that superficial way. It just feels wrong. The relationship I do kind of like is him and Fiona. She's the bad girl and she kind of picks him up from the beach one time and drives him in her fast car and is constantly harassing him and his hench people, but I wish they had played more with her. I wish they had made her more of a pussy galore and maybe had her convert or something. Maybe it's just a more compelling actress, but I was more into Fiona than I ever was Domino. How about the dialogue in that scene, too, when they're back and forth sparring? When they're doing the double entendres and stuff, like at the end of the scene, she says something Mm -hmm. like, you don't like women drivers, she says, I don't like being taken for a ride. What a great line. And they played off each other so well. So when she finally does get it, it means something to me. And she was on top of him. Again, we talk about how Bomb was one step behind. He is actually running for his life through the Junkanoo, and she finds him where he hid and gets it from her own assassin. But when she gets out of the movie, a lot of the life leaves the movie. And I really wish she was around for much longer. There wasn't that much life in this movie to begin with, but yeah, (laughs) I agree with you when she's gone, it then flatlines. Her death is one I really don't like. I think they took their best idea at just the throwaway moment in the last movie where Bond sees in the reflection of the eye, because here we get almost seizure-inducing, rapid cut, drum-beating, gun-coming, Bond spider-sense-tingling, and then he just whips around at the last moment. It was... Like so much of this movie, convenient. I was taken out of the movie, but not by any fault of the filmmakers. This is the same parade and same festival that Ellen Brody is going through in Jaws, The Revenge. And with all the sharks in this movie and that festival, I was just having an out-of-body experience and remembering Jaws, The Revenge again. But am I crazy about this death? It does feel like they're ripping themselves off from Goldfinger. I do like the character. She's the only good villain in this. When she goes without really putting up much of a fight, there just isn't anything more to do. Except underwater ballet. Now, Stuart, you said you liked this underwater stuff. I appreciate this underwater stuff, especially in the final battle where people are parachuting in and armies are coming by sea. I see where the money went, and it was well spent. But I think just because of the pace and the way water slows your movements down, I can find underwater scenes beautiful, but I can't find them exciting. And so all of this action at the end, was about as much fun to me as watching the After Dark screensaver from the 90s with the fish tank that maybe would soon flip to the flying toasters. I love this fight. I think it's cool. I really, I'm totally into it. I recognize what you're saying that, you know, with modern sensibilities and today's editing, they would be able to do this so much better. And I know that they're in a pool and not in the ocean, but damn it, I don't care. This is what I want to see in a 60s Bond movie. This scale, this epic. Again, I'm wondering where Bond is in all of this, but are these the other double O agents? You know, early on, he takes a meeting with all of the other double O agents. Did they just all get whacked? Well, I thought these were the CIA agents or NATO agents because they're still NATO's bombs. I thought NATO came in to save the day. Oh, NATO spies. But I agree with Arnie completely. I love James Bond. I'm the guy here who's the fan, and Arnie stole my words. I completely appreciate 
what they're doing here, and for the time, it's remarkable. But it's like watching a slow-motion action scene, and I never like this stuff. I get bored by this stuff. If you want to see a good action scene underwater, I like the one earlier when Bomb was investigating the ship, and then for no reason at all, there's a sentry <laughs> underneath the ship who follows Bomb with the spear gun. That is how I want to see an underwater battle, one-on-one, or maybe two-on-one. Here, they kept on coming and coming and coming, and how many times can I watch a guy get his mask ripped off or his air hose cut or get shot with a one-shot harpoon gun? It's like a Revolutionary War gun. You get one shot, and that's it. It's lame. It got to the point, Stuart, where to make it more exciting, they thought it would be a good idea to show us a shot of an eel, or was that a lobster or a conch crawling on the bottom of the ocean? (laughs) Yes, yes. It's not exciting, and yes, appreciate everything that scene is doing, but compelling cinema, it is not. And also, I have a question about those masks you mentioned, Brock. James Bond gets his mask ripped off. Not his air breather, just his eye mask. And he's like, oh no, what to do? I'll turn around and take this other guy's eye mask. But it's full of water, so why is it helping him? I don't scuba dive, so I don't know. But I think if he's putting on the mask underwater, it would be full of the water that he for some reason didn't just want to look through, even though he did to see the mask. I think you can blow the air out of a mask with your nose. I think there are valves to do that. So you can't just blow the air out of your nose under the water? Well, you can, but with the mask on, when you blow the air out of the mask, then you can actually see underwater. Oh, you blow the water out with your nose. Okay, okay. I didn't know that. I was wondering why he was racing so hard for that mask, though. It was confusing. Yeah, you can't see underwater in salt water very well. The underwater stuff is where he gets to use the Q-toys. The thrill this time, what he's been given, all the tech that he has. It's not a car. It's not a suitcase. It's his diving gear. You know, he has air tanks that also have missiles on them. And he has, I don't know, it looks like a harmonica, but apparently it can let him breathe underwater for four minutes or whatever. Or 20 minutes, as the end of the movie shows us. (laughs) I noticed that when I was 15, the first time I watched this movie, I'm like, this has been longer than four minutes, James. Go up for air. But here, you know, it's a conceit. We have to go with it, that it's only four minutes that he's under the water for that entire end sequence. Yeah, and I do go with it. I have no problem with any time this movie is underwater. I think it's fun. I like all the tech toys here. You know, Largo's got this disco boat. What's it called? Disco Volante? Disco Volante, which I only know because Mr. Bungle named their CD that. And I'm like, oh, it's the Mr. Bungle disc. (laughs) Oh, yes, Mr. (laughs) Bungle. The less successful spinoff of Faith No More. You know, I just feel like as far as bad guy layers go, it splits in half. It's got machine guns. I don't know. It's lacking for me. I feel like Largo, yet again, he just doesn't have the toys that other Bond villains get to play with. He did have a sub, though. It wasn't a submarine, but he was kind of a submersible. Yeah, the little yellow thing that's got the nukes. And for some reason, he had that whole cavern with the opening doors or whatever. I don't know how long it took to build that, but... Actually, I can tell you, they actually found that cave there, and they put doors in front of it, and the tide ripped the doors off twice. So they had to go back again to film it a third time at low tide so the doors would stay on. It's an actual cave there. Yes. Why would you actually put doors? What purpose did it serve for him to do that? You know, why were both nukes there? I don't even really want to get into this plot. It's really not worth it. When I have to be reminded it's about Largo up ahead on the boat and fighting the Navy. I don't know. I don't like Largo. I think that's as simple as that. You know, Stuart, you mentioned the toys. This time is the first Bond movie that we get a secret Q layer. We don't know that Bond is walking into Q Labs, and it's on location. And that was kind of fun. That's the first time he got surprised by that. Although the Q sequence wasn't as much fun as the last one. No, I didn't like that they weren't in the Q headquarters with all the other tech that Bond doesn't get to use, at least this time. Hey, he was on vacation. You know, he's there. I think he had, what, like a Hawaiian shirt even or something. Tried to fit in. You know, I don't know. It was fun. I kind of dug the last... The end of the movie, with Largo and Bond's confrontation on the boat, the close-quarter boat chase, I kind of liked. It was reminiscent a little bit of the train fight in From Russia With Love, although the train fight was much more fun to watch. It was okay. Here's the problem, and I mentioned this earlier. Everything was sped up. It's almost like the editors realized, this movie really sucks, and maybe it's better if it's faster and more intense. I gave this series the gimmies in the previous ones of the frame rate that have been used in some of these action scenes, but here it's not used, it's abused, and it pissed me off. 
and because it's happening when they're steering the boat, that was hysterical. It's a combination of two things I hate. Obvious rear projection with sped up frame rates. So I couldn't get into the fist fight because everything leading up to and after the fist fight was shit. The problem is, is that Largo doesn't have the imposing quality of Robert Shaw. Every time they make a reference to what they've done before, it's at the detriment of Thunderball. So they finally escape on a life raft, and I expect it's going to end like Dr. No did with them screwing on a boat, and his big red rocket goes up, his inflatable one. Yeah, I get the innuendo. I think I know what that means. This is a sex raft. (laughs) (laughs) No, they're swingers. They're going to be swinging from a cable in a minute. (laughs) Surprise! I thought that the thing would take at least the entire raft with them. No, Bond just has to hold on really tight or Domino going to take a plunge. I love the insert shot of Domino smiling like she's not actually flying. (laughs) Because she's not. Well, I I know, but there was not even an attempt to pretend. They've left behind the German nuclear physicist that was working with Largo to stop and start the bombs. You might want to swing back and pick him up. I'm just saying. He didn't blow up with the boat? No! They give him, like, a life preserver. We have no idea. That's true. He doesn't get on the safety raft with Domino and Bond. No, Bond doesn't go for that. Two chicks, fine. Two dudes, weird. (laughs) So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Thunderball? Stuart. Well, you know, when they were swinging away on that cable, I think they jumped a few sharks. It's inevitable, after Goldfinger, as big as that movie was, how do you top yourself? They try here, and there are things that I like. I think that the kidnapping of the NATO plane and getting the missiles, all of that is a fun heist. I think that all of the underwater fight choreography is really neat. But there is a long stretch of this movie where it feels like nothing is happening. And Bond has almost no role in the story, but certainly no chemistry with the woman, with Felix, with the villain. I like Connery a lot, but he can't do it all alone, and Thunderball kind of asked him to do that. Now, we are going to get this story again, and I'm very excited about the fact that we get another crack at Thunderball. That It gets remade in a few movies, we'll get to Never Say Never Again, an unofficial Bond movie that essentially redoes this with a middle-aged Connery. I think that that's an exciting proposition, and I think that there are things here that can be improved upon, and I hope that they are. When I return to that, I'm hoping that my concerns with Thunderball are alleviated. But we're not talking about Never Say Never Again. We're talking about Thunderball, and unfortunately, I think I'm going to have to go mild, not recommend. Arnie. Stewart's been kind of implying slash teasing that I am in for a long haul with this James Bond retrospective because I didn't get enthused about Dr. No and I didn't jump up and down for Goldfinger. Well, I could rename this movie Thunder Hall because it was a chore for me to get through. I really give it a strong not recommend because nothing here worked for me. There was no suspense There was no good action. There were no good lines. There was no good girls. There was no good sex. There were no good gadgets. It was all watered down. (laughs) Not recommend. Strong not recommend. Thunderball for me has been one of those James Bond films I just never have gotten the appeal. Why people like this movie, I have never understood. I have found it boring as a kid. And some movies that we talked about, like Dr. No, when I was younger, I didn't really care for. And as I gotten older, I really liked and appreciated and saw better things in. This one, I'm just bored. Now, Arnie, you didn't have to watch this movie three times. I did. I watched this movie three times for our retrospective here. And when I watched Goldfinger three times, I didn't mind for a second. I minded every time for Thunderball, especially the last two. And the action scenes don't work for me. The villain doesn't work for me. The girls don't work for me. The one-liners are lame and boring. The music doesn't help me at all. Really, so much underwater stuff. It got to the point where I was tired of them going underwater. It ceased to be cool for me because they were there so much. So no, I don't recommend this movie either. I think it's one of the weaker Conneries, and I think the reputation of it is not earned. But as Stuart said, we are going to see this story again, and I'm not going to get too much into it now, but the screenwriter that Ian Fleming took the novel from a screen treatment he and a couple other guys wrote and didn't ask for their permission to turn that screen treatment into a novel. And so they sued and got rights, and so 
to produce this movie, the producer, Kevin McClory, made a deal with Saltzman and Broccoli. The other two took executive producer. And they made a deal that he could not produce any other Bond movie for 10 years. And boy, did he try after the 10 years was up. And he finally did it Would Never Say Never Again. And we will see in a few podcasts whether or not a remake will help this story again. But we'll talk much more about that later on. And don't forget to join us over at Books and Nachos. Brock and I will be covering all of the original Ian Fleming novels. I've kicked things off already with Casino Royale and Live and Let Die. This week it's Moonraker. Obviously, they don't follow the same order as the movies. They're starting to not even follow the same plots as the movies. I'm not sure that when we get to Moonraker of the movie, it's going to be very similar to the novel. But go ahead and check out Books and Nachos. You'll hear my thoughts over there. And you can also join in the conversation on our forums. If you go to nowplayingpodcast.com, there's a link there to our forums. You can also listen to other shows in our archive section there. You can also join the conversation on Facebook. We post a lot of things on Twitter. And, of course, you can go to iTunes and leave a positive review for us there so other fans like yourself can find Now Playing and join in the fun. Sounds like you could use a laugh, Arnie. Maybe if we left the non-canatonical bond and did something a little different, it might be more to your liking. Yes, Now Playing will return in Casino Royale? That's right. We will get to You Only Live Twice, the next Connery movie, after we cover the Peter Sellers, David Nevin spoof that came out two months prior to it in 1967. Jimmy Bond can't wait. So Now Playing will return with Casino Royale. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing James Bond Retrospective Series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. M really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. You'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vinganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. I don't remember that in the previous three. <laughs> it's called the, it's called the W it's called a 007 theme. It was in from Russia with Love. Oh, all right, scratch all that shit. All right. <laughs> As we say here at Now Playing, we'll get there. We always do. <laughs> we always do. <laughs> nice nice Arnie. Nice. So Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Thunderball, Stuart. Oh, did you not want to talk about the sex?